This is the Law for Community Workers podcast for community and health workers produced by Legal Aid New South Wales. My name is Pauline and I'm from the Community Legal Education Branch here in Legal Aid and we would like to acknowledge that our podcast is recorded on Aboriginal land and pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to any First Nations listeners joining us today. Always was, always will be. Hello all. Everyone already knows that it's important to have a will. So today we're going to look at the different building blocks of having a well-structured will. A will is not about being a senior citizen or having wealth and lots of assets. It's an important document for people from all walks of life and can be done as soon as you turn 18. And today our guest is Natalie from New South Wales Trustee and Guardian. Natalie's here to talk to us about wills. Hi Natalie, welcome to Law for Community Workers. Hi, Pauline. Thank you so much for inviting me to come along and talk to you today about this really important topic. Um, So I'm Natalie Darcy. I'm the Senior Solicitor leading up the Estate Planning Legal Team at New South Wales Trustee and Guardian. And look, one thing I love about my job is helping people, helping people to get their legal affairs in order. When people get their will and their other important estate planning documents in order, there's often a sense of relief or a sense of calm in knowing that they've they've now taken care of that important task and that it'll make things you know just that little bit easier for their family and their loved ones when the time comes. So you're absolutely right. <laughs> and welcome again. And Natalie, to get us started, would you please tell us about the New South Wales Trustee and Guardian and more specifically about the will service? Sure. So at New South Wales Trustee and Guardian, we have nine branches around the state of New South Wales. And those branches are are focused on making wills and other important estate planning documents for the citizens of New South Wales. Our nine branches are in Sydney, Parramatta. Mm -hmm. We've got Newcastle, Lismore and Port Macquarie in the north. We've got Broken Hill. And in the south, we've got Wollongong, Bathurst and Wagga Wagga. In many cases, our customers come into one of our nine fixed locations, but we also go out into the community in areas where we don't have a physical branch location and we hold what we call plan ahead days. Yeah, so it might be at a local library or a Service New South Wales office or the local RSL club and we hold, I suppose, what you might call a pop-up store to make wills and estate planning documents for people. So, yeah, wherever you are in New South Wales, there's a good chance that we provide a service nearby. Is there a calendar on the website of the Planning Ahead Days? Do you plan them throughout the year or are they off the cuff? Or? Well, no, we do plan plan it. We plan ahead for our Plan Ahead Days. So, <laughs> yeah, there is information on our website about where those are held. And certainly if people get in contact by telephone with their nearest branch, they can make an inquiry as to whether we might be coming out into their area. Okay, well, we will definitely have a link to the planning ahead calendar then in our show notes as well as the website, obviously. Great. Okay, then let's get into the questions about wills specifically. So let's start with the worst case scenario. Natalie, what happens to your assets and belongings if you don't have a will? If you don't have a will, it's known as dying intestate. And there's legislation that sets out who receives your assets if you don't have a will. But the difficulty is that everybody has different circumstances and what's right for one person's family isn't going to be appropriate for the next. So it is really important to make a will to suit your particular circumstances and the circumstances of your loved ones. Look, the laws are actually different in each state and territory around Australia in relation to wills and estates. But I'll tell you just a little bit about how it works in New South Wales when you don't have a will. So there's a list of priority and it starts with spouse and then children. 
And if you don't have a spouse or children, the next in line to receive your estate is your parents. If your parents have predeceased you, then your siblings are next in line, then grandparents, then aunts and uncles, and, and finally first cousins. And if you don't have first cousins or anyone closer, then the estate would pass to the New South Wales government. Now, that's just a general overview. There are lots of intricacies involved within each of those categories or levels, but it gives you an idea of the order of priority. Mm -hmm. So then, Natalie, what is a good preparation tool to get the whole process of writing a will started? Do they cost anything to make? A lot of people think it's simple, but then other people think it's too overwhelming. Mm. So, so what's the good preparation tool? Well, it's really important that people do make an appointment to see a professional willmaker, like New South Wales Trustee and Guardian or like their local solicitor to have their, their will and estate planning documents made. If you get help from a professional, it can be simple and straightforward and stress-free, but there are a lot of intricacies involved in the law that you have to meet and you have to get right. Um, and that's why it's important to see a professional. There are some things you can think about in preparation for your appointment with a professional will maker. Things like, who do you want to be your executor? Who do you want to get your assets? Are there any special items that you'd want to go to a particular person? And it might be an important piece of jewellery or a family heirloom. If you have children, who do you want to be their uh, guardian? And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later. And look, it's a good idea to think about all of your assets because one of the things that a professional willmaker is going to ask you is, you know, tell me about all of your assets. So it might be a good idea to make a list of those. Um, look, in terms of cost, the t cost of a will can vary depending on your circumstances and also depending on how simple or complex your wishes are for your will. So, for example, the cost is going to differ depending on whether you simply want a will that divides everything you've got equally between your children or whether you might want something like a long-term trust to be set up in your will that, that will go on potentially for decades uh, because in that case there needs to be really detailed terms in the will setting out the terms and the rules of the trust. So the, the cost can vary from usually a few hundred dollars up to a few thousand dollars, depending on the level of complexity. But at Trustee and Guardian, we actually make wills at no cost for people who are entitled to the full um, Centrelink age pension. So that's really good to keep in mind. And what about will kits, Natalie? What are some issues you've seen with those? Because they're very popular, they sell them in the post office, they're easy to get. But having had bought one myself many years ago, it's basically a bunch of blank documents and some explanations. So can you talk to us about that, please? Sure. Look, that they can be quite problematic. Look, a will has to conform to strict legal requirements and that's why it's a good idea to have one made by a professional will maker rather than using a will kit. Without that professional assistance, you could risk making a mistake or creating some uncertainty even losing opportunities for good estate planning. And, and all of those things can be really costly for your beneficiaries. One common problem we see with will kits is ambiguity regarding the meaning of words that someone has written down in the will. And that can create uncertainty about who's intended to benefit and what they receive. Because you need to keep in mind that the words you use in everyday life when you write that down on a legal document like a will, it may not have the legal meaning that you intend. And we see cases in court where the judges had to try and decipher what the person intended when they wrote their will. Other problems we've seen are where people 
haven't signed the will properly, there are strict requirements for the signing process and, and all too frequently I've seen these rules not being fulfilled when people have made their own will using a will kit. And look, sometimes the problem is that the person making the will hasn't thought through all of the possibilities of what might happen. There are things that solicitors and professional will makers like our staff at New South Wales Trustee and Guardian are trained to think about. So for example, what happens if one of your beneficiaries dies before you? Where do you want their share of the estate to go? What about if an asset you own now is no longer owned by you when you die? Does the beneficiary you've named to receive that asset get something else mm. instead? And look, if I can give you an example of a, of a case I had quite a few years ago and involved a gentleman who had made a will using a will kit and his assets were a house and a very small amount of money in, in the bank, just enough to cover his funeral. And he had some very close friends who had spent a lot of time caring for him. He was very close to them. He didn't have any close family. And using a will kit, he stated in his will that those close friends were to receive his house. He didn't deal with any other assets in the will. He didn't give away what we call the residue of the estate, which is you know, everything else other than the house. And that's most likely because he didn't think he needed to. He thought, you know, all I've got is my house. There, there won't be anything else. But look, several years later, he became quite unwell and he sold the house intending to go into aged care. And he passed away just as the house had oh. sold and before he'd had a chance to make a new will, or I'm not sure if he had, you know, if he had thought that he had to make a new will. So he didn't own the house when he died. He had the proceeds of sale in a bank account. Because he no longer owned the house, the gift to those those close friends failed. They weren't entitled to anything. He'd effectively died intestate without a will that set out where his assets went. And, you know, he, he had some very distant relatives that he hadn't seen in decades who ended up mm. receiving his estate. So, yeah, unfortunately, I've seen too many situations where people have tried to save a little bit of money by using a will kit and doing their will without professional assistance. But then after their death, it can cost their beneficiaries, you know, a lot of money in legal costs, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes even more, trying to sort out, you know, potential issues that, that do arise. That's um that's that's a little bit sad, isn't it, when when someone's wishes can't be fulfilled to show their gratitude to someone just because of the language and, and the technicalities of writing a goodwill. Oh, exactly. That's right. And legal costs can be very expensive um, when it comes mm, to, you know, yeah. going to court to sort these problems out. Yeah. What about superannuation, Natalie? Is that considered a part of a person's estate? Look, this is actually quite a complicated issue. Superannuation may not form part of your estate, but it might. So so when you die, mm -hmm. your superannuation death benefits, that's what we call them, that's what gets paid out of your super fund when you pass away, mm -hmm. they might be paid directly to your dependents. So it might be your spouse or children, and therefore it bypasses the will altogether. Or it could be paid into your estate, in which case it is dealt with as per your will. Now, where your superannuation death benefits ultimately end up when you die is going to be impacted by the rules of your particular superannuation fund. And different superannuation funds have different rules. It can depend on whether you've made a beneficiary nomination and also on the type of nomination you've made. Okay. Some nominations are called binding nominations, which just as the name suggests, the superannuation fund has to comply with that, provided it's mm -hmm. current and it's and it's legally valid. But then you have non-binding nominations, which is um, you've nominated who you'd like to receive your benefits, but 
ultimately it's up to the superannuation fund to decide when you die what is most appropriate. And look, there are rules about who you can nominate as a beneficiary of your superannuation death benefits, which, um, you know, that's something I find when, when I see customers, there's a lot, of, a lot of people aren't aware of that. It has to be someone who fits the definition of a dependent under the legislation that governs superannuation funds. Generally, that includes a spouse or children or people that are financially dependent on you when you die, or otherwise your superannuation death benefits can be paid to your estate. But let's say I wanted to nominate my mum as the beneficiary of my superannuation death benefits. The problem is she isn't a dependent of mine. So if I made that nomination, it wouldn't be valid and the superannuation fund wouldn't be able to follow it. Mm. If I want my mum to receive it, I have to make sure it's going to come into my estate and make a nomination, a binding nomination with my superannuation fund to make sure that happens and then make sure that the superannuation is gifted to my mum in the will. So there's all these little um, tricks and tips that you need to be aware of to make sure all of your wealth goes to where you intend. Just about that, does that include when your children are adults? Because when they become adults, they're not necessarily dependent or are they still seen as dependents by the superannuation companies and can get your super? Well, that's right. For that particular purpose, for the purpose of nominating your child as a a beneficiary of your superannuation death benefits, they are considered as a dependent in that sense. Okay. No matter their age. That's right. There is a bit of a trick there in terms of taxation. There's a couple of different definitions of dependence for the purpose of superannuation. There's one definition for the purpose of, just to make it complicated, (laughs) there's one definition for the purpose of who can receive your superannuation death benefits directly from the fund. And another definition as to who can receive your superannuation death benefits tax-free. So whilst an adult independent child can receive your superannuation death benefits direct from your superannuation fund, they generally will be required to pay taxation. Whereas your spouse who is considered and any, sorry, your spouse and any minor children who are considered dependents for tax purposes generally would be able to receive it tax-free. Oh, good. Okay, Natalie, what about a situation where you have two people, not necessarily spouses, Mm -hmm. in joint ownership of a property? What happens there? Okay. So when you own property with someone else, there are two ways you can own it. You can own it as what's called tenants in common, or you can own it as joint tenants. Okay. So the first one, um, tenants in common, that's where each person owns a specific share of the property. So let's say I happen to own a house with my sister. I might own 50% and she might own 50%, or I might, might own 90% and she might own 10%. When property is owned as tenants in common, I can leave my percentage share to whoever I want in my will. So I might decide to leave it to my co-owner, my sister, or I might decide to give it to my kids or to someone else, and I can do that. If, however, I own my house as joint tenants with someone, then neither of us own a specific percentage share, but rather we both own the whole thing globally, if that makes sense. And what it means is when one of us dies, the survivor automatically becomes the owner of the whole property. I can't leave my share of that property to someone else in my will unless I happen to be the last surviving joint owner. So what it means is when you're making your will, it's really important to understand how you own your property, whether you co-own your property with a spouse or with someone else. It's really important to understand that. And sometimes we have to look at the title to the property through doing a title search to make sure how it's owned. It is possible to convert ownership from a joint tenancy to a tenancy in common. And that's something people will occasionally consider when they're making their will, depending on their their circumstances and, and their wishes. 
That concept of joint tenancy also applies to bank accounts and it can apply to other assets um, as well, like shares. If you have a bank account with someone, it's, it's held as joint tenants and the surviving joint owner receives the whole of that asset when you die. Okay, thanks for that, Natalie. Then, okay, so let's move on to executors. What are the key components of a sound executor and why is that important? The, the executor is responsible for all the work involved in administering your estate after your death. Everything from clearing out your house, making sure your assets are insured, selling assets, finalising your tax returns, making sure all of your debts are identified and paid. And they're, of course, responsible for distributing the assets to the beneficiaries entitled under your will. If there are any legal proceedings involved with the estate, the executor is the one who's involved in defending those legal proceedings and being involved in the court process. So being an executor is a really big job and it's one that often requires the ability to deal with legal and financial matters. Look, some people choose to appoint a family member or friend as their executor and others choose to have an independent executor like New South Wales trustee and guardian. Some things to think about when you're choosing an appropriate executor Are they comfortable dealing with financial matters like organising tax returns, managing investments, selling assets? Are they capable of impartiality and handling disputes that might arise? Because unfortunately, we do see situations where disputes arise between beneficiaries and having an executor who can stand back and be independent and impartial and not take sides can be really important. If there are long-term trusts in the will, are they willing to look after those, willing and able, I should say? So, for example, you might have a beneficiary who at the moment is a young child, might be a grandchild, and, and money has to be held for them for quite a number of years, maybe until they get to 18 or 21 or 25. The executor is generally the one who holds and invests those assets and you know, arranges the tax returns and makes decisions about any interim distributions that the child might need. They effectively become the trustee for the child and they're holding that money for them. Are they willing to do that? And of course, the, the big question for an executor is, are they willing to do it? Do they have the time? It's a really good idea to you know, speak to the person that you're intending to appoint if, if you're choosing to appoint a person rather than an organisation like Trustee and Guardian and just make sure they're, they're willing to do it. Um, you know, they might be time poor. They might think, look, that's not a responsibility that I want to take on. When people are considering who their executor will be, it's also a really good idea to think about the age of the executor. It really should be someone who's likely to to outlive you. And also location can be important. So preferably not, not someone who lives too far away. Look, now there are so many things that can be done online and digitally, but there are still jobs as an executor that need to be done with a physical presence. Things like clearing out the house and searching through papers and things like that. So location can be important as well then I guess it would be fair to say that it's important to have all your important documents in one place for someone, for your executor, just to be a little bit little bit kinder about the process then to have oh, everything absolutely. in one place. Yeah, if you identify your executor, make sure they know where to find all of that information, that financial information about mm. your assets and liabilities that will make their job much easier. So Natalie, what happens if your executor actually passes away before you've updated your will? 
Yes, that can be a problem. So what we always recommend is that people nominate a substitute executor. So someone who will take on the role if your first choice of executor um, passes away. Or it might be that they're still alive, but due to ill health, they can't take on the role. So there should always be a backup. Without that backup, it means there'll be uncertainty about who's going to be responsible for administering the estate. It ultimately means one of your beneficiaries may end up applying to the court for permission to administer the estate. And sometimes there can be disputes about which beneficiary that will be, could end up being someone that you wouldn't have chosen to do the job. And of course, people can choose New South Wales trustee and guardian to be named as their executor. We've been administering estates for well over 100 years now, Mm. and we're a perpetual organisation, so we're always going to be around to make sure the terms of the will are carried out. What happens if someone dies and they've got debt? What if the debt is greater than the estate? Are the next of kin responsible to pay the person's debt? Yeah, well, look, your, your executor or the person administering your estate is responsible for identifying what all of your debts are and using the available money in your estate to pay those debts. But look, if your estate is not large enough to cover all of those debts, then generally for those organisations who are owed that money, it's going it's likely going to mean they're not going to be able to recover it because an, an executor or beneficiaries can't be made personally liable for a debt that isn't theirs. Superannuation and life insurance can be a little bit tricky. Because superannuation doesn't necessarily come into your estate, it often goes directly to the dependents. It won't be an estate asset available to pay your debts. With life insurance, if life insurance comes into your estate, it also, under the laws, isn't available for payment of your debts unless there's something in your will or otherwise that has indicated you anticipated or expected or wanted that life insurance to be available for payment of your debts. So there can be some tricky things there. But look, no, generally executors and beneficiaries can't be made personally liable for debts that their deceased accumulated in their lifetime. Oh, that's good to know. It's just something that I think about every now and then, you know, like, should I be really careful from now on about making sure that my kids don't have to pay any debts? What should I do? Well, the other thing people often ask me is about the reading of the will. You know, you watch these shows and they always talk about the reading of the will and there's no such thing. Because we all watch too much American TV and we see very dramatised will readings. Yes. I like the idea of making um, all my family come into a little solicitor's office and sitting around only to be told that you've inherited (laughs) a ceramic cat. Okay, then let's move on. So Natalie, when should a person update their will? Is it easy to do? And also, are there any costs to do it? Okay, so your will expresses your wishes at a particular point in time and you do need to regularly review your will as your circumstances change. Some of the circumstances where you may need to update your will or you should update your will, firstly, where you've had a change in relationship status. So you might have married, divorced, um, started or ended a de facto relationship. They're all times when you should be reviewing your will and most likely updating it. If you have children or perhaps grandchildren, again, another time to update your will. If your beneficiaries or executors pass away or if there's a significant change in your assets. But look, in any case, even if your circumstances or or those things I've just mentioned haven't changed, it is a good idea to review your will about every five years. There can be changes in the law or changes to how taxation works. And so it's a good idea to have a regular review with a professional willmaker to see if your will needs an update. And unfortunately, it's one of the biggest mistakes I see with wills is that 
where people haven't updated it and they pass away with a will that no longer suits their circumstances. Things like someone might have made a will when they thought they'd finished their family and they didn't plan to have any more children, but then they did and they hadn't updated their will or they've, they've made their will gifting a particular asset to someone and they haven't updated their will when they've sold that asset. So yeah, that generally is a cost when you're updating your will. And like I mentioned earlier, it does, it'll depend on the complexity of what that change is and, and what you want to do. And again, at Trustee Guardian, full-age pensioners can update their will at no cost. Oh, that's good. That's good to know. Okay, well then we mentioned briefly earlier about having children and nominating someone to look after them. What's the actual process to nominating a guardian for any children in your care? Because they may not necessarily be your own biological children. They could be any child in your care. It could be grandchildren, anything like that. What's the process for that? So when you've got children under 18, you can appoint a guardian for them in your will. And that's where you're the, I suppose, the legal or biological parent of that child. So the guardian is the person responsible for decisions about their welfare, their well-being, education, religious upbringing, all of those major decisions. You can nominate a person or more than one person in your will to be the guardian. You do need to check with them, of course, that it's a role that they're willing to take on. Now, it's important also to keep in mind when you're thinking about who your guardian will be that it needn't be the same person who's going to look after your child or your children's inheritance. That's usually the executor and trustee of your will. It could be the same person, but generally we recommend that it's a good idea to have those roles separate. So there's some independence and oversight. Another thing people need to consider when they're thinking about their guardian is should the guardian that they're nominating in their will only step in if both parents have died? That's what I find most people do ask for, but sometimes a parent might decide that if they pass away, they want their chosen guardian to step in and be a joint guardian with the surviving parent. And that's really important to consider and how that works impacts how we draft the will. So again, that's another reason to have a professional will maker. So all of those technical and legal issues can be considered. That's amazing. I've never even heard of that as an option. That's, that's incredibly interesting. Yeah, it is. And a lot of, it's something a lot of people aren't aware of. So Natalie, in addition to that, or just as a carry on from that, what about parents of children with special needs or vulnerable children about making sure that their inheritance is looked after? Yes, this is a very important question because it can be so stressful for parents with a vulnerable child, concerned about how their children are going to be looked after once they're gone. So important for those parents to get good professional advice. But one good option to consider is setting up a long-term trust for the child. Now, often these trusts are referred to as protective trusts. And a trustee is appointed, often that's the executor, but it could be someone else. And the trustee manages the inheritance for the lifetime of the the child. And depending on the terms set out in the will, the trustee would generally be able to use the income from the inheritance for the benefit of the child and perhaps also the the capital sum or the assets that, that are there to make sure the child is provided for. In many cases, it's a good idea to have an independent trustee and trustee, New South Wales Trustee and Guardian does have a long history of managing those sorts of trusts for vulnerable beneficiaries. There is another type of trust called a special disability trust that you may have heard of. It's a special type of trust that attracts social security means test concessions. 
And there are strict criteria to qualify as a beneficiary of a special disability trust. The beneficiary must have a severe disability, and that term is defined in, the, in legislation. And the trust provides for the care and accommodation needs of the person with the severe disability. And there's some discretionary spending as well. So that can be a good thing to consider for beneficiaries who do have a severe disability because of the means testing social security concessions that are attracted there. And look, it's certainly a good idea for people, you know, with a vulnerable child to get some financial advice as well to work out the best way to make sure that they're provided for. So, okay, well then that's that's our real babies. What about people that have fur babies? Are there any additional steps for pets to be included in a will either as beneficiaries or for their ongoing care? Does that even happen? Is that even real? Well, pets actually can't be a beneficiary as a, of a will as such. So in the eyes of the law, our pets are personal property. So as terrible as it sounds, just like you own your car, you own your washing machine, you own your pet. Um, oh, I can hear a lot of indignant <laughs> sounds coming from the airwaves right yes. now as we speak. Yeah, so you can't leave money directly to your pet, but you can certainly make provision in your will to make sure your pet's going to be looked after. And look, it's so important to so many of us. And and there are a few options. So in your will, you could leave your pets to a family member or friend who'd be willing to look after the pets. And you could consider leaving that person a sum of money to help cover the costs of looking after the pet, because of course, it can get very expensive, you know, veterinary costs, food, mm-hmm. toys, medication. Another option is that some charities run programs where they'll rehome your pet for you after you've passed away. It's important to check on their requirements. Some may require that a gift be left to them in the will. For others, there might be requirements about registering in the program before you pass away so they can make sure that the pet is appropriate for rehoming. So the upside is that there's always something you can do to make sure that the fur babies are looked after if anything happens to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that's right. Some people might actually, we've had situations where people have set up a long-term trust for their pet and trustee and guardian has acted as a trustee of those types of trusts. So essentially a sum of money set aside and and it's held for the life of the pet. It's it's happened before with horses because they can be, of course, very expensive to, you know, to maintain and make sure that they're looked after. Oh, that's good. I hope we made all the fur baby parents a little bit happy and given them a little bit of peace of mind now, knowing that. Yes. Yeah. So then, Natalie, we've we've done all that. We've got everything. We, we've followed all the rules. We've we've got the language down. What is now the process of having the will signed and making it official? And actually, then where will it be kept? Mm, okay. So a will has to be signed in front of two independent witnesses. The witnesses can't be beneficiaries in the will. And there are special rules about the whole process. So for example, not only must the witnesses see the, that we call them the testator, the person making the will. So the witnesses must not only see the testator sign, but the testator must also see the witnesses place their signature on the will, which a lot of people aren't aware of if they haven't gone through the process before. And there are special rules that can be followed if the testator isn't physically able to sign the will themselves. Um, You know, they might have been in a terrible accident, for example. They can um, direct someone in their presence to sign the will on their behalf. Traditionally, a will has had to be signed in the physical presence of the witnesses. You've all had to be in the same room. But during the COVID pandemic, some laws were introduced that allowed wills to be witnessed over audiovisual link technology. And those laws were originally temporary, but now they've become ongoing. 
And there are some really specific requirements that need to be met there to make sure that the will is validly signed. Now, once you've got your will signed properly, yeah, absolutely vital to make sure it's kept somewhere safe and secure. It could be in safe custody with a solicitor or New South Wales trustee and guardian has a will safe where we keep will safe and secure. And, and of course, as, as important as storing it somewhere securely, you need to make sure that your loved ones know where it's kept. We usually recommend telling your executor and at least one or two other people, like your beneficiaries, where your will is, because if no one can locate your will after you're gone, it could mean your wishes aren't going to be fulfilled. We, we don't recommend keeping your will at home because it could be you know, destroyed inadvertently or lost or perhaps after your death, your loved ones come in and they don't realise, you know, might be going through your personal papers and, and don't realise the importance of those documents. So, yeah, very important to keep it stored somewhere safe and secure. Okay. So, I understand there's a different basis to contesting a will, one being contesting a will because you consider it invalid and the other being when someone believes the will is unfair. Can you please talk to us about those scenarios or those situations? Sure. So someone might challenge a will because they're saying this will isn't actually a valid will. They might be saying that because they're alleging the will was made at a time when the person didn't have sufficient mental capacity to understand what they were doing, or they might be alleging that the will was was a forgery, uh, that it wasn't the deceased signature. Or they might be alleging that the deceased was pressured into making a will. They did it against their wishes. The correct legal term for that is undue influence, where someone was unduly influenced to make the will. But the other type of claim you mention is what we call a family provision claim. That's where you've got a valid will. The will was properly made and the person had the, the required capacity to make it. But there's someone claiming that the terms of the will are unfair and that they should have received provision from the will or perhaps they should have received a greater share from the will. And that's called a family provision claim. So there are only certain people who are eligible to make a family provision claim. In New South Wales, that includes spouse, uh, your children, ex-spouses, grandchildren who've been dependent on the deceased person at some point and anyone else who's lived in the same household as the deceased at some point and been dependent on them at some point. That last category I mentioned can include stepchildren, foster children, really anyone that has shared your household. So look, it's, it, and it's something that's quite emotive for a lot of people. It, it's important to keep in mind that in Australia, we're free to leave our estate to whoever we want. We have testamentary freedom. But that is somewhat curtailed by the ability of certain people to be able to make these family provision claims. And, and there are lots of factors taken into account when a family provision claim is made. One of them is the financial circumstances and the needs of the person making a claim. Do they have a need for provision or further provision from the estate? Other things can include the, the state of their health, their, their relationship with the deceased, any contributions they might have made to the welfare of the deceased and, and to the, their estate, and the circumstances of the, the beneficiaries are taken into account as well. Okay. It is important to keep in mind that just because someone can make a claim doesn't mean that they'll be successful and there's a whole range of factors the court takes into account. And it's an expensive process too, isn't it, to, to actually start the process, isn't it? It is. Look, if, if a matter like if a family provision claim or a, a, a will generally being contested goes to court, you're generally looking at tens of thousands of dollars and it can sometimes go into the six figures. So 
it, yes, it can be very expensive for the estate. So it's important when people are making their will that they talk to mm. their advisor about it and they understand I mean, who's eligible to make a claim against their estate and they understand how those processes work. You mentioned briefly at the beginning of that answer about testamentary capacity and everyone knows about the whole sound mind and body thing from TVs and movies, but can you please talk about what that really means when you make a will? the testamentary capacity? Yes. So there's a four-part legal test to decide whether someone has the capacity to make a will, which we call testamentary capacity. And the test was actually set out in a court case that was decided in England in the 1800s. So even though that was you know, more than 150 years ago, it's still the primary case that gets referred to today by the courts whenever there's an argument about whether someone had testamentary capacity to make their will. So essentially, the person has to understand the nature and effect of a will. So they understand that a will comes into effect when you die and it's disposing of your assets after your death. They need to have a general understanding of their assets. So the things they can give away in their will. Now, it's not necessary to know the exact dollar value of your bank account on that day or exactly how many shares you've got in a particular company and what they're worth, but you need to have a general appreciation of of what your assets are and their values. The third part of the test is being able to understand who are the people you should have in mind when making your will? Who are your family members? Who are the people who depend on you? And lastly, the last part of the test is that the person must not be suffering from any disorder of the mind or delusions that, that impacts the decisions that they make in relation to their will. Often a question we get is, you know, if, if someone has dementia, does that mean they can't make a will? The answer to that's possibly, but it does depend. They might be able to pass that legal test. The fact that someone has an illness like dementia doesn't automatically mean they can't make a will. But it certainly means that we need to consider that legal test. We may speak to their doctor to see you know, what their doctor thinks about their level of capacity and, and how they would be able to address those points of the test. Because of course, it's really important that when someone is making a will, they do understand that process. We don't want people making wills if they are at the stage in life where they're not able to you know, reason and make those proper decisions, because it is a really important thing that affects you and your family. So Natalie, what happens to your will if the solicitor who made it passes away? And I've actually had calls about this from people because, you know, their solicitors passed away. What should they do? Yep, this is really important to be aware of. As to what you should do, it's going to depend, as with so many things in the law. If the solicitor is part of a law firm which has other principals, other owners, other partners, in many cases the law firm will continue to hold your documents in safe custody and there shouldn't be a need for you to do anything provided you're happy for your documents to remain with that law firm. If, however, your solicitor is a sole practitioner, the sole owner of the law firm, Then on their death or perhaps on their retirement, another solicitor would generally be appointed to take over the running of that law firm or the law society might appoint what they call a manager to take over the running of the law firm. If the law firm's going to close down because the solicitor has passed away or retired, it's quite possible the important documents held in safe custody will be transferred to another law firm. And there's rules that that govern solicitors called the Legal Profession Uniform General Rules, and they provide that a law firm has to maintain a register of its safe custody documents. And so if a law firm is taken over by another firm, 
the safe custody documents should be taken into possession of that firm, which has which has taken over. And if the solicitor has, say, retired, they're actually required to let their clients know a certain period of time prior to the transfer of those documents so that the client has the opportunity to say, well, actually, I, I want my documents sent elsewhere. If you're unsure what's happened to a law firm who holds your documents, you can call the Law Society of New South Wales and they should be able to provide some information about who took over the firm and therefore, you know, where your safe custody documents have been held. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Well, we've actually covered wills pretty extensively today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Natalie, are there any other important documents people should think about, especially mm. legal documents, when they're making their will? I mean, I know they don't stand alone. People need their advanced care plans, all that sort of thing. So what are they? What are these documents people should think about? Yes, yeah, so look, usually if, if you go along to a solicitor or to New South Wales Trustee and Guardian to make your will, you'll also be asked, do you have an enduring power of attorney and an appointment of during, enduring guardian in place? Now, an enduring power of attorney is where you appoint someone to look after your legal and financial affairs for you in case the time comes when you're no longer capable of doing it yourself or if you don't you know, you get to the stage where you you don't want to do it yourself. Whereas an appointment of enduring guardian is where you appoint someone to make health and lifestyle decisions for you in case one day you lose capacity to make those decisions yourself. So the will deals with what happens when you pass away, but the power of attorney and the appointment of enduring guardian are there in case you lose capacity to manage your affairs and make decisions for yourself while you're still alive. So an example of what your attorney under an, under an enduring power of attorney might do is things like you know, withdraw money from your bank account to pay your bills, sell your house if it needs to be sold, buy other property for you, pay fees for, to an aged care facility you might be living in and, and sign legal documents for you, whereas your enduring guardian is the one who makes decisions about things like where you'll live if your current accommodation is no longer appropriate for you. They, they'll also make decisions about personal services like in-home care that you might be able to receive and they can also consent to medical and, and dental treatment on your behalf. So in either case, whether we're talking about your power of attorney or enduring guardian, you can see they're really personal things and you have to appoint someone that you can trust mm. to do the right thing. And when someone's made your power of attorney or your enduring guardian, they actually have a uh, paperwork to show their role, don't they? They they have paperwork to say they are nominated as that that person. That's right. Legal documents drawn up that they would then say for a power of attorney, your, your attorney would go and present to the bank as, as evidence of, of that they are in that role. Okay. And is it usually the same person, Natalie? Do people usually nominate the same person to be both or should it should it be two separate people? What's the best course of action? Quite often people do appoint the same person as their power of attorney and enduring guardian. On the other hand, some people decide to choose someone separately. You know, you might have a son who happens to be an accountant. You think they'd be great in that role as the power of attorney managing the financial affairs, whereas you might, you know, have a daughter who is in a medical profession and you might think she'd be great to make the decisions about my health and lifestyle and medical treatment under the enduring guardian. Where you are appointing separate people, it's really important to make sure that they're going to get along and be able to make consistent decisions. And you might think, why does that matter? Because they're separate areas. You know, one's dealing with financial and legal matters, one's dealing with health and lifestyle decisions. But you imagine, for example, you know, unfortunately, many of us might one day get to the point where we need to go into aged care. 
it's the power of attorney who is responsible for you know selling your home and making those payments to the aged care facility whereas your guardian under your enduring guardian appointment is the one who would be making decisions about you know which facility you'll go to and what particular services you receive so it's really important that those roles can act together so if if you've got two people at loggerheads that would be a problem. Um, and in terms of the power of attorney, people can choose to appoint New South Wales trustee and guardian in that role if they do want someone independent and a professional attorney. That's an option as well. Okay. Thank you for that. And thank you so much again for joining us today, Natalie. This has been incredibly helpful and some wonderful information. So thank you again. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Look, my parting words would be don't put off making a will and and your other estate planning documents like your power of attorney and enduring guardian and don't put off updating them if your circumstances have changed. For many people, these are things that are not seen as urgent, but we don't necessarily know what the future is going to bring. So having those up-to-date documents can protect your loved ones and bring some peace of mind. And we've got lots of information on our um, trustee and guardian website. So if people wanted to go along and have a look at that, there's some good information and, and fact sheets available on there about wills and powers of attorney and appointments of enduring guardian. That was our guest, Natalie Darcy from New South Wales Trustee and Guardian. Uh, as always, you will find links to the website pages and resources mentioned in this episode as well as a full transcript listed in our show notes you can always email us to cle at legalaid.nsw.gov.au this has been law for community workers thank you for listening and goodbye everyone